0: In the text today, in Nehemiah chapter number 4, let me welcome you to Jerusalem. Uh, We were here last week and we were thinking together about the problem. You remember last week that uh, we were able to clearly define, clearly see the problem in Jerusalem during Nehemiah's day. The problem was that 50 years after Zerubbabel had returned to Jerusalem, Uh, 50 years after he had brought a group of of people, a remnant of Jewish people, back to inhabit the city of Jerusalem and begin that all-important work of rebuilding the temple of God and reconstructing the city and reestablishing life in the city of Jerusalem, 50 years after all of those things had happened, the problem was that the walls of Jerusalem had still not been rebuilt. The walls and the gates were still lying in ruins. In fact, last week I pointed this out to you in chapter 1 and verse number 3. Just take a quick look there. Chapter 1 verse 3 says, and they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. That's the condition of the people. They're suffering greatly They are being mocked uh, and uh, maligned. They're under great reproach. And this is because, verse 3 says, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And so that was the problem that we discovered. Now, I was inspired, and I hope you were as well. So we were inspired last week by Nehemiah's sense of duty. Chapter 1, verse 4 upon hearing the news that the walls are broken down, the gates are burned with fire, the people are under reproach and suffering greatly, he senses, I've got to do something about this. This was his sense of duty. Uh, I gave you a definition last week of what duty is. Do you remember? Duty is a moral or a legal obligation. Nehemiah certainly had no legal obligation Uh, to go to Jerusalem and to fix the problem of the broken down walls. But he did have a moral obligation to do it. He sensed, uh, he was compelled that he must act. And upon arrival in Jerusalem, he compelled the people who were living there to embrace that duty as well. He pressed the duty that was so real in his heart, he pressed it. Upon them. So last week we talked a lot about duty, didn't we? We talked about this idea of of doing our duty to the glory of God. Two specific things that we learned last week we discovered that we have a duty to the gospel of Christ. And last week I called that the duty to guard the honor of God's name. But it's about the fame of the name of of our God, the fame of the name of Jesus. This is our duty for gospel witness. And we also talked about our duty to the people of Christ, not just the gospel of Christ, but the people of Christ. That is that like Nehemiah, we should seek the welfare of one another. This is our duty of service. Every person who knows Jesus has a duty of witness and a duty of service, a duty, a duty to the name, the honor of God's name and a duty to the to the welfare of God's people. And duty uh, duty is something that we ought to celebrate when people do their duty. In fact, we do that, don't we, in the United States? I mean, I think it's one of the things we do pretty well, is that we honor those who do their duty. You know, a good citizen, somebody goes above and beyond and, and acts in a, in a neighborly way, and we go, man, that's great. Way to go. You're a good citizen. You did your duty." Or uh, particularly our first responders, our firefighters and, and our police officers, they, they serve to, and, and protect and they do their duty, and, and we celebrate them. In fact, can we do that? Would you just celebrate our first responders, both campuses? It's good. You, you men and women do your duty, and we're grateful. For you. And we do this for men and women of our military as well who who serve our nation and do you know celebrate them? We ought to do that, right? Celebrate them. Woo! Woo! That's good. I mean, we ought to celebrate those who do their duty. And you know, I mean, we're not gonna applaud about this, but I celebrate you at Brookstone Church. I do. I celebrate the sense of duty that you have. As a church family, and I've watched God over the last three decades, You know, if you're new to Brookstone, I, I'll, I'll let you know I've had the privilege to be the pastor of this church for 31 years. And over 31 years, I've watched this sense of duty grow among this church family, this sense of we have a, a responsibility in the world, and we want to be sure that we're carrying out our duty. So way to go, Brookstone. But all of us know that doing your duty is rarely easy. Do you agree with that? Doing, uh, doing, doing your duty is rarely easy. It always, whenever we seek to do our duty, we always encounter opposition. We always encounter spiritual op- opposition when we want to do our duty for the glory of God. And we, we also realize that the work... Never really quite gets finished in this life, does it? I mean, your duty just always has to be done. And when you've done your duty, guess what? You just got to keep doing your duty because it never really gets finished. You know, if, you, if you're building a marriage, some of you are in a marriage and you're you are dutifully keeping your vow, vows and you're dutifully building a strong marriage. And maybe you've been doing that for a year or five or 10, or like Tracy and I, 36, or some of you longer than that. But here's what you, you find out. It's never really done, is it? You just have to keep on doing it. You have to keep on doing your duty. If you're raising your kids, it's a duty that never, ever ends. And by the way, do you agree with me, parents of adult children, even when your children are adults, you still have a duty to them as parents? Amen? Amen? It never, it never gets done. You never get to go, okay, duty finished. I mean, I thought that a time or two when my kids were growing up. I thought, you get 18, but you're just I'm done having to worry about you. It doesn't work that way. And then they have children and you have to and those grandkids really keep you praying. But you're when you're when you're doing your duty with your children, it never really gets finished. And our duty with regard to the work of God, right? So praying, the, the, the duty to, to, to uh, call on the Lord in prayer and to bear one another up and the, to bear up the work of the gospel in prayer, that never gets finished. To serve and to give, I mean, those things never end, right? You never come to the place where you go, okay, I've been serving in the church for 10 years. I don't have to do that anymore. Or I, I gave my tithes for five years. I don't have to do that anymore. No, these things just continue on and on and on. It's the way life is. Caring for aging parents. This is a duty uh, that many of us have. The point is that when we do our duty, it is not easy. It uh, is always met with spiritual opposition. And the truth is, it can be and it often is exhausting to do your duty. And sometimes people just get tired and they quit. You ever known anybody that did that, by the way, don't raise your hand, but you ever known anybody that just threw in the towel, they just walked away, they just called it quits? Some of the greatest disappointments that you'll ever have in your life will be when somebody who who was doing their duty in in their relationship with Christ and in family and in relationship, they just bolt and they just walk away and and it's it's heartrending. The Apostle Paul knew this disappointment, 2 Timothy 4.10. He speaks about his his dear friend and ministry partner, Demas, when he says of Demas that he has uh, forsaken me. He loved this present world and he had departed. So some people do that. Now, by the way, I should stop and say that if that's you, if you are the person who, who threw in the towel who somewhere in your past you walked away or somewhere in your past you just decided it wasn't worth doing your duty anymore. Let me welcome you back. Can I just tell you that the mercies of God are new every single morning, amen? And it's one step back and, uh, and I want to welcome you back home and back to Jesus. The truth is, if we're going to be faithful in doing our duty, if we're going to be strong to do our duty and strong to bear up under the pressures of life, if we're going to be strong to to never give in or never get distracted or never give up or never give up again, then we, we need what Nehemiah had. In fact, not only what Nehemiah had, we need all of the elements that we've been learning from Ezra and Esther and Mordecai and Zerubbabel. All of these elements of our seven strong series. going to remind you of the first five. Today we're going to go to number six. Here are the first five. We've learned about endurance, integrity, graciousness, courage, and duty. Those are the five we've considered. Today we're going to consider uh, number six, which is discipline. Would you write that down somewhere? If we're going to be strong, if we're going to bear up under the weight of this world and do our duty to the glory of God, then we need to learn Discipline. I'm going to read the passage beginning in Nehemiah chapter four, beginning in verse number one. Nehemiah four and verse one. Verse one says, "But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was wroth, or filled with wrath, or angry, and he was very indignant, took great indignation, and mocked the Jews." And he spake before his brethren to the army of Samaria. And he said, "Uh, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end or build this wall in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him. And he said, well, even that which they build, if a fox goes running up on it, He shall break down their stone wall. Verse 4 is a prayer. Hear, O our God, for we are despised and turn uh, turn their reproach upon their own head and give them for a prey in the land of captivity and cover not their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from thee. For they have provoked thee to anger before the builders. Verse 6, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashtonites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, they were very wroth, very angry. And they conspired, all of them together, to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God, and we set a watch against them day and night because of them. And Judah said, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. There is so much rubbish so that we are not able to build this wall. And our adversaries said, they shall not know, neither see, until we come in the midst among them and slay them, and we will cause this work to cease." And it came to pass when the Jews which dwelt by them came, they said unto us ten times, From all places whence you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. Therefore I set in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, be not, uh, be not ye afraid of them, remember the Lord, which is great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and that God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. It came to pass from that time forth that half of my servants were working in the work while the other half of them held the spears and the shields and the bows and the, and the habergens of the armor and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which built on the wall and they that bear the burdens, and those that were doing the lading, everyone with one of his hands worked in the work and with the other hand he held a weapon. For the builders, every one of them, had his sword girded by his side, and so he built. And he that sounded the trumpet was by me. And I said unto the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, The work is great and large, and we are separated upon the wall far from one another. In what place, therefore, you hear the sound of the trumpet come running? I love the King James. It says, Resort ye thither unto us. Come running to the sound of the trumpet. Our God shall fight for us. Verse 21, so we labored in the work and half of them held the spears from the rising of the the morning until the stars appeared. Now we're going to be considering from this passage today four ways in which Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem exercised discipline In this project of rebuilding the wall and seeing it through to completion. But what I want to do uh, is to begin more broadly thinking about discipline in a more general way. And then we'll narrow it down specifically to the text. Let me begin by giving you a definition of discipline. What is discipline? Well, all of you know already some idea of what discipline is all about. The definition is simply this. Discipline means to train. It is to train often by correction in order to bring under control. It's a really good definition. It is to train often by correction or hardship, sometimes by punishment, in order to bring under control. You see, discipline is necessary for a productive and a blessed and an orderly life. If we are going to live in such a way that is going to be filled with blessing and order and live in a family where there will be blessing and order and live in a community where there will be blessing and order and live in a nation and a culture where there will be blessing and order and productivity, there must be discipline. And the reason discipline is necessary is because in its natural state, people and things move from order to disorder. We tend to go from control to a lack of control. And so God brings discipline, God teaches us discipline in order to keep us from sliding toward chaos and a lack of control. He gives us discipline... He he is a God of discipline. He is a God who brings instruction and teaching and correction in order to keep us from this decline. Now, we know this from our own experience as the sons and daughters of God. Those of you who know Jesus as your Savior, here's what you know about your Heavenly Father if you've walked with him for very long at all. He disciplines his children. If you know that, would you say amen? Amen. He, he does. He disciplines us when we move away from order to disorder, away from obedience to disobedience, away from control to a lack of control. That's what he does. He disciplines us, he corrects us to bring us back. You know, one of the things the scripture says of itself is that the word of God is good for us. It's good for correction, it's good for instruction and in righteousness, it's good for reproof so that it brings us back to where God wants us to be. Look at Hebrews 12 and verse 6, which says, For the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. Right. So Scripture says this is what God does. We need discipline. God, as our Father, disciplines us. Now, if you believe that God is a good heavenly Father, in the fact that he disciplines us, would you say amen? That's good, right? It's a good thing. Well, here's the neat thing that we as parents should remember. That not only does God model for us that disciplining your children is wise, he also teaches us as parents to discipline our children. He tells us this in the scriptures. Look at what the Bible says in Proverbs 22 and verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now stop right there. Every parent with any experience said amen. Amen. Foolishness is bound up. It's part of. It's it's integrated into the heart of a child. Foolishness means that I rebel against order. I rebel against uh, um, instruction. It means that I reject authority. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, you don't have to have a child for very long. I mean, really, just once they get past infanthood and into toddlerhood, you realize pretty quickly that 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 child's got some foolishness somewhere in its life. Now the Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but, look at the verse, but the rod of discipline, the King James says the rod of correction, but it means discipline, the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Amen. Now, what that means, if you take the word rod of correction, what that actually means, a rod of discipline, is it means hickory switch in the Greek. That's the word. (laughs) Now, some of you would say, well, now, Pastor, listen, you know, this is a modern age, and I don't believe that you should, I don't believe parents should spank children. I believe that we should use every method of discipline and every form of guidance other than corporal punishment. Let me be quick to say, I'm in favor of, of many forms of guidance and punishment. I I think there are a lot of ways to discipline your child. But I will be very clear to say to you that if you will in love sometimes bring the rod of correction to the seat of justice, (laughs) it'll help your children to live less foolishly. Amen? I'm just telling you. And I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about abuse at all, of course. I'm talking about a parent who loves their child in a loving way, um, disciplining those children. Well, so God is a good father. He disciplines us. And he teaches us to discipline our children. Now, we also know that we need discipline even when we grow up, right? And so by his spirit, God has made possible that we could exercise self Discipline. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but God has given us the spirit, the Holy Spirit within us, of power and of love and of a sound mind, the King James says it means, of, of self-control or self-discipline. So the Bible says that God disciplines us, God teaches us to discipline our children, and then God gives us his Holy Spirit that we might exercise self-discipline. Do you see the value that the Scriptures place Places upon discipline. Um, I'm going to turn to the New Testament and just read to you from 1 Corinthians. and You could go there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 9. I want you to listen to what Paul says. His description of discipline if we're going to live this life in a way that's victorious. Uh, I'm in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. He says, Do you not know that they which run in a race, an actual foot race, are all running, but one only one will receive the prize. Only one runner gets to break the tape. So run, he says, that you might be the winner. Run the race in a way that you will be victorious. Well, what does that look like? Verse 25, every person who strives to win, strives for the mastery, is controlled in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a Corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. Paul says, I therefore so run, not uncertainly, undisciplined. I fight, not as one that beats the air in an undisciplined way. Verse 27 But I keep under my body, or I keep my body under submission. I discipline my body. Speaking not of an earthly race. The earthly race is just the metaphor, the illustration for the, for the life race, the heavenly race. He says, I keep my body under discipline. I bring my body under subjection so that lest when I preach to others, I myself would become a castaway." And here's the point. God is a God of discipline. He disciplines the nations. He disciplines his children. He teaches us to discipline our children. He gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can live and exercise self Discipline. Here's the point. If you are listening, say amen. Discipline and a life to the glory of God are inseparable. You cannot live a life to the glory of God if you do not learn to exercise discipline in the power of the Spirit. Now, by the way, this should not be surprising to us at all. Because can you think of a word from the Bible that describes a Christian that sounds a lot like the word... Discipline. In fact, it has the exact same root word that is essentially the same word. It's a disciple. The Bible, when it says that we are to be disciples of Christ, it is saying we are to exercise discipline as learners of Jesus. A disciple is a person who learns, a pupil who receives training and instruction and correction in order to live more like their master. If we're going to live a life and and be strong that will bear up under the high tension of life and fulfill our duty, then we must live with discipline like Nehemiah. Now back to Nehemiah chapter 4. Again, that broad view of discipline. Let's begin to focus now on the discipline that was required for Nehemiah and the people. You'll notice in chapter number 4 that they endured some hardships when they began this project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, not everybody was excited about it. And In fact, write this down. In the text, you learn that they faced a conspiracy of opposition to their project. There were a lot of people who did not want them to rebuild those walls. In fact, chapter 4 mentions four different uh, men and groups of people who were actively opposed. They're identified as opponents to this work that Nehemiah is leading the people in. Look at verse number uh, one. You'll see the first name. It's the name Sanballat, verse one of chapter four. Now it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall. Now we know some things about Sanballat. We know that he was a Samaritan. Chapter two identifies him as a Samaritan. We know that from secular history that he was a governor in Samaria And we know that Samaria, the area, the region of Samaria, is to the north of Jerusalem. So you have Sanballat, who's opposed to the word. Then verse number 7 of chapter 4 tells us about a second person whose name is Tobiah. Look at verse 7. it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah... Now, we know that Tobiah is an Ammonite. He is from the nation of Ammon, a descendant of Ammon... He is apparently in, uh, he's allied with Sanballat and the Samaritans. We know that, that uh, the Ammonites are to the east of Jerusalem. If you have Sanballat, you have Tobiah. Verse 7 also describes the Arabians. Verse 7, it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians. Now, if I go back to chapter 2, verse number 19 We hear about the Arabians again. Chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian. Now the Arabians here refer to the Bedouin tribes. And Geshem was apparently a tribal chieftain of the Bedouins. These are the Arabs who live to the south of Jerusalem. And then chapter 4 and verse number 7 mentions the fourth group. Look at it again, chapter 4, verse 7. Sanballat, Tobiah, the uh, the Arabians, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites, or the Ashdodites. Now, the Ashdodites are the Philistines. The Ashdod was a city, one of the five cities of the Philistines. That city was on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, about 60 miles from Jerusalem to the west. Now, think about this. Nehemiah comes, initiates this project to rebuild these walls to the glory of God, for the fame of his name and the welfare of God's people. He's doing his duty and immediately all of this opposition comes from Sanballat to the north, Tobiah to the east, the Arabians to the south, and uh, the Ashdodites to the west. Look at chapter 4, verse 8. All of them conspired together to come against the work and to fight against the work and to hinder the work. It is literally opposition coming from every direction, north, south, east, and west. Does it ever feel that way to you, by the way? Does it ever feel to you when you're trying to live a life that brings glory to God and honor Him and do your duty and and serve the way that you should and just be the man that God wants you to be or or be the, the, the woman or the wife or or the husband that God wants you to be, to be the, the, the student, the teenagers that will please your, your parents and honor the Lord? Does it ever feel like everything is arrayed against you? That all of the enemies of this world are conspiring against you to stop you. You just want just to honor God in my marriage. I want to I I go through life honoring the Lord in this relationship with my spouse. And there's so much fighting against that. I want to raise my kids in a way that honors the Lord, and yet the culture is eroding everything that I'm trying to teach them. I'm just trying to do my duty, and the difficulty comes. Well, Nehemiah experienced it, the people experienced it. Verses 1, 2, and 3 tell us that these four enemies are very angry and that they're indignant and that they're mocking them. Verse number 8 tells us that they conspire together to fight against and to hinder it. Verse number 11 says, we will kill you. You won't even see us coming. When you turn around, we will be there to slay you. And when we kill you, the work will stop. It is this opposition that is arrayed. Against them. The same happens to us. But it's not only external opposition. Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem struggled with crippling discouragement as well, crippling discouragement and fear. Look at chapter 4 and verse number 10. This is internal struggle. Judah said, These are the Jewish people. This is in the land of Judah, in the city of Jerusalem. They said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to finish. They start the project and they, they realize, good grief, how are we going to get this done? And it seems so difficult that they think we'll never, we'll never be able to complete it. Verse number 12, they say, no matter, it came to pass that the Jews which dwelt by them came and said to us ten times from all places where you shall return unto us, they will be upon you. In other words, the enemies are in the north, the southeast, and the west, no matter where you go. You are facing this enemy and you will be attacked. As loved ones, we all face the same kinds of opposition to living in a way that honors God. We all face the same sorts of struggles and, and discouragements in our, in our families, in our marriage, in our work, in raising our kids, and in our neighborhood, our schools. And so when you're, when you're trying to live in a way that honors God in whatever that context is, And all of the opposition is coming. How is it? What are the steps necessary to be able to be disciplined and do what God has called us to do, live in a way that honors him? Let me me give you several things just real quickly as we wrap up. If you want to exercise the discipline to live victoriously, here's the first thing you must do. Write it down. Stay at it. I don't think it could get any more simple than this. Just stay at it. Whatever it is that you're called to do. If you're in a marriage, stay at it. Uh, you can't go back and undo something in the past, but if you're in a marriage relationship right now, stay at it. Uh, if, you, if you're struggling in some other relationship, just keep at it. Whatever, wherever the enemy is opposing you, just keep going. Don't quit. If you're a student... And everyone around you is falling off the moral cliff and embracing a lifestyle that you know Scripture forbids and that Jesus would be displeased with. And you want to stay right with God. Stay at it. Don't give it up. You know, this tenacity of Nehemiah and the people is so impressive to me as you read Uh, about the progression of the work. In chapter 2, we saw last week where Nehemiah comes to them and says, you see the distress we're in? Uh, We've got to rise up and build. That's chapter 2, verse 17. In chapter 2, verse 18, they said, let us rise up and build. Let's do it. And Look at the next verse, chapter 2, verse 19. The very next verse, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arabian, the Ammonites, they all began to laugh at us because we said we're going to build. And they immediately began to mock the very idea. But the people persevered. Chapter 3 tells us uh, of the builders in the project. In fact, chapter 3 lists dozens of people, uh, hundreds, really dozens of families, hundreds of people who labored in the work. Over 50 times, chapter 3 says, we built, we labored, we built, we labored, we set up the bars, we hung the hinges, we put the doors up, we built, we built, we built. That's chapter 3. Chapter four, verse one, intimidation comes. Sanballat heard that we're building, indignant, mocking. Chapter two, we build, the opposition comes. Chapter three, we build, the opposition comes. Chapter four, verse six, so built we the wall. We just kept building until we were halfway finished. That's chapter four, verse six. Look at chapter four, verse seven. It came to pass when Sanballat, Tobiah the Arabians, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, all these people, when we just kept building the wall, they just kept opposing. Look at chapter four, verse 15. It came to pass that when our enemies heard that it was known to us, God had brought their counsel and all, we all returned to the wall and we returned to our work and we kept on building. Chapter four, verse number 18. There's battles happening. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, come and fight. So they had to fight. Chapter four, verse 21. So we labored in the work. Do you get the point? As you read through it, here's what happened: They started working. The enemy started fighting. They kept on working. The enemy kept on fighting. They kept on building. The enemy got more angry. They kept on building. The enemy rose up, and they just wouldn't stop building. Here's where discipline comes from: Just stay at it. Don't quit. I may be speaking to someone right now. You're that close to quitting. Life has thrown you all of the difficulties that you could imagine, and you're ready to throw in the towel and just say, no more. I'm gonna be the person who's just gonna bolt. I'm calling it quits. Here's the word from Nehemiah. Discipline says, stay at it. Ephesians 6 and 13 says, when you've done everything else, you just stand. Galatians 6 and 9 says, in due season, you will reap if you don't quit. Stay at it. Many of us are familiar with the famed speech of Winston Churchill. that took place in 1941 at his alma mater, the Harrow School for Boys in Great Britain. When speaking to this group of boys, about a 20 minute long speech, but it is remembered not for anything he said in those 20 minutes except for the last line, the last statement when Winston Churchill, who by the way, a few years later said to all of Britain, we will fight on the shores, we will fight in the streets, we will fight in the fields, we will never, ever, ever, ever give up. That's who he was because when he spoke to that boys' school, he said to them, never give in, never, ever give up, never, ever, ever, ever quit. It was the message that Churchill lived by. And it's the message that Nehemiah lived by. When the enemy comes, you just keep building. When the opposition presses against you, you just keep on stroking. When the enemy comes and says it's not worth it, you just keep on doing what God has called you to do because discipline means I stay at it. Here's the second thing. Number one, stay at it. Number two, pray through it. Pray through it. Last week, we noticed Nehemiah's prayer in chapter one at the beginning when he first heard about the calamity in Jerusalem. It says that he fell down to his knees and he prayed. But it's significant to note in chapter number four that this prayer practice of Nehemiah continued. In fact, his disciplined response, keep building, keep building, keep building, fight and build, fight and build, keep building, that his disciplined response to the project and its opposition was partnered with what seems like an almost reflexive prayer response. Let me show it to you. Chapter four and verse number four, where where the Bible says, hear our God. The enemy rises up and we'll mock you. You you, you can't do this. Oh God, we need you. Chapter four, verse number nine. The enemy rises up and and we're gonna come against you. We're gonna conspire to stop you, verse nine. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God. Loved ones, if you wanna stay at it, you must pray through it. I say that again? If you wanna stay at it, you must Pray through it. For some of you who might be in a difficult relationship, a marriage or some other relationship that's difficult, if you would pray for that person, your spouse or whomever, as much as you criticize that person, you might begin to be able to stay at it a little longer. We should pray with our kids, not just for our kids. We should pray with our spouse, not just for our spouse. We should pray for and with our church. Don't don't just attend it. You should pray through it. What is the old hymn? Is it What a Friend We Have in Jesus, which says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. If you want discipline, stay at it. Pray through it. Thirdly and lastly, fight for it. Fight for it. Um, I love how that uh, in verses 9, verse 14, verse 17 and 18, uh, Nehemiah is all about, we've decided that there are some things worth fighting for. And one of those things is the safety, the security of Jerusalem. Notice what he says, chapter 4 and verse number 9 Upon hearing all of the opposition and the threats, in verse number 9, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and we set a watch against them day and night because we set up guards who would be night watchmen and daytime watchmen, who would watch the horizon, who would watch for the enemy to be coming. By the way, that's part of fighting for your marriage, part of fighting for your family, fighting for your church, fighting for what is right is to simply lift your eyes and quit being self-focused and begin to scan the horizon for the enemy and his activity. Verse number 14, we determined that our families were worth fighting for. I looked and rose up and said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. The Lord is on our side. He is great. He is awesome. And in his strength, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I love that Nehemiah says, you're not just, you're not just fighting for the, the for the wall. You're not just fighting for the, for the city. You're not just fighting for the nation. You're fighting for your, for your kids. You're fighting for your family. So determine that some things are worth fighting for. And then verses 17 and 18. They which were building the wall, and they that bear the burdens, and those that were lading, uh, everyone with one of his hands held a Uh, a trowel. He worked in the work and with his other hand, he held a weapon. Now here's the, the image. I've always had of this in my mind. You've got one person bringing the stone, putting it in place, drawing his sword as he goes back to get the next stone. He sheaths the sword, picks it up, comes and lays it, draws his sword to go back to get the next one. Then you've got the guy mixing the mud if you know anything about bricklaying, there you go. Mixing the mud and preparing the mortar. He's stirring with a trowel and got a sword in this hand. And then you've got the guy laying, uh, uh, laying the stones. He's there. He's got a, a sword in one hand, a trowel in the other, and he's working that stone while he is fighting. Here's the point. You don't, you don't stop doing your duty while you're fighting your battles. You fight your battles while you do your duty. And some things are worth fighting for. And I would suggest to you that the glory of God, the honor of his name, the welfare of his people, the benefit and the blessing of our families and our community and our church is worth fighting for. Loved ones, if you want to be strong, if you want to bear up under this world, if you want to finish with victory, then like Nehemiah and these people in Jerusalem, you and I need to embrace discipline. Stay at it, pray through it, and fight for it.